Be Christ's Church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke Podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. You believe that truth, church? Y'all, y'all live this morning? I mean, that's good stuff. It's why we're here. If, if that message that we just sang is a message that is on the inside of you, it changes everything. In the face of death, there is life that awaits you. I conducted a memorial service for a lady who's been a member of our church since 1984. Yesterday, she battled Parkinson's for the last 30 years of her life. And the first time that I went to visit her, she was, you know, your new pastor, you want to find out who's in the nursing home and, and who's on the homebound list. And she was there on the homebound list. And I went to see her and I knew that she had Parkinson's disease and I expected that it would be me encouraging her. And I left discovering that it was her encouraging me. Because this message that we just sang was a message she had so deeply processed and internalized that though her body was being ravaged by a disease that she did nothing to get. It was, it was not her disease because of some personal sin in her life. It's just living in a world that is broken. Her eyes were fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher of her faith. And in, in the midst of great pain and losing her ability to read God's Word. So then she would just listen to it on CD and she would carry her physical copy of the Bible around with her in her wheelchair so that she could still be around the Word of God even though she couldn't read the Word of God. I was, I was challenged and I was blessed to see a picture of a life of victory. Somebody living in light of the victory that Christ had secured for her. Not abandoning hope, not giving in to depression or to despair, but keeping her eyes fixed on Jesus. And as we've worked our way through the book of the Psalms, we've been in the summers sometimes when it, when it works out for the pastor's schedule. Sometimes we're just going through a book and I can't stop, but sporadically we go through the Psalms in the summer. And we'll get through them eventually. There's 150, and today we're in Psalm 31, if you'd like to be where we're going to be eventually after this long-winded introduction. So you can find your place in, in Psalm 31. And What you'll find in Psalm 31 is that the themes that we're going to encounter are much like the themes that we've already encountered. And, and you might be thinking as you read this psalm, well, what are you going to tell me that you haven't already told me? And that's exactly what I was wondering at the beginning of this week. What, what new, what more can I say? And then I, and I was reminded that the repetition of the scriptures is because we need repetition. <laughs> the reason these themes are presented over and over and over again is we're so tempted 
to despair. We're so tempted to quit. We're so tempted to throw in the towel and to forget about the victory that our king has secured for us. And so I just abandoned any attempt at being novel or new. And I just said, I'm just going to preach what the Bible says because that's what God has given us. But you're going to see some, some themes that are repeated. David is in trouble, even, even at risk of dying. He's surrounded by enemies. And when you're faced with, with death, not just physical death, but death of a career or loss of a promotion, enemies will, will swirl and they'll, they'll ask you to default to self-preservation and to selfishness and to worship of self rather than dying to self for the glory of God. So, so David is in trouble. He's surrounded by these enemies that will see that whisper to him, that lie to him. And he, he resolves again in Psalm 31, as he's done in so many psalms before, to entrust himself to the Lord, to seek the Lord's presence, to let the Lord deal with his enemies and to then praise the Lord for his victory. Now we're not going to make it all the way through Psalm 31 today, but, but we're going to cover most of those themes in the next two weeks. In these psalms, we're going to see a foreshadowing of the victory of the, the victory that will come through God's forever king, through the, the king in the line of David, the anointed, appointed king through King Jesus. The psalm begins with a superscription that says, for the choir master, which as we've covered in many psalms before, Many Jewish interpreters for centuries before Christ did not interpret as being for the choir master, but unto the end. In other words, as you read this psalm, it's telling you about a victory that will happen in the end. And then interestingly, we're going to get to verse 5, and it's going to say, into your hands I commit my spirit. Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. Do you hear echoes of that in the New Testament? Do you remember Jesus' last words on the cross? He's quoting from Psalm 31, verse 5. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And what I want you to get out of this psalm today, I hope I can introduce this effectively and appropriately, is this. That, that David's victory comes by looking forward to the future victory that will come through Christ. And our victory in the warfare that we must now wage, Ephesians 6, we're in a spiritual battle, comes by looking to the victory of Christ. We cannot be victorious apart from Christ's victory. But in Christ, we are empowered to face our enemies in the same way that Jesus faced his. Y'all tracking? Psalm 31. Let's figure out how we can win like our king. To the choir master, a psalm of David. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. And you take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand, I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. In these first five verses, I just want to show you that like God's king, we must entrust our lives to the Lord, our righteous refuge. If you're going to win in the battle 
of life, in seasons where marriage is difficult, in seasons where your boss is a crazy knucklehead, in seasons where you're in doubt and despair and things just don't make sense, you must entrust your life to the Lord, your righteous refuge. If you're living for your world to be perfect right now, rather than for the king who's bringing a perfect world when he returns, you will never be satisfied. You will always be irritated and agitated and despondent and in despair. But if you get your eyes fixed on Jesus, who will come again as conquering king and will bring the perfect place of worship for the people of God, whom he has made perfect by his atoning sacrifice, you can make it today and tomorrow and until he comes. What does David do? He's surrounded by enemies. He's surrounded by people who want to ignore him or set him to the side. He's being tracked down by enemies seeking to trap him in a net, verse 4. And what does he do? He says, Lord, you're my refuge. You're my rock. You're my fortress. Terms of, of warfare and of battle and of strength and of protection. Longman says this, David asked for protection using a full arsenal of relevant metaphors. He doesn't underestimate the battle. And I think sometimes that's what Christians do. We're like, ah, spiritual warfare, it's no big deal. It's a huge deal. Satan wants to take you out. He does not want you to endure. He wants your marriage to fail. He wants you to give up on life. He wants you to think that yesterday's failure to get in the Word means that you just won't get in there today or tomorrow or the next day. He wants you to throw in the towel. And David says, you're my rock, you're my refuge, my fortress, the enemies are surrounding, I need all that you are, God. I don't want a little bit of your protection. I don't want a little bit of your strength in this moment. God, fortify me with who you are, because I'm at the end of my rope. I'm undone. I don't know why I'm even alive. I don't know what my purpose is. I have no clue about any of that. And God, I need you right now. Somebody in this room or online or in the gym might be there today. Be my rock and my fortress. Be my strength and my protection. Save me. Look at verse, verse 1. Deliver me. Verse 2. Rescue me and save me. And in this case, he means from a physical attack. And in verse 3, he asked God to lead him and to guide him. God, help me to navigate the enemies in my life. These things that I'm facing in my life that want to rob me of the joy of the Holy Spirit and cause me to abandon the gospel and to live for the world. God, lead me and guide me through those things. Help me navigate. Help me to live in wisdom. And then notice the familiar language in verse 3 from Psalm 23. Why does he pray this? Does he pray this to, just so that he would have a great life? Just so that he would have victory? Not that it's bad to want to be victorious. I mean, it's better to be a hokey than a, than a Tar Heel today. But ultimately, ultimately the reason that he prays this is not for his, his own glory, for himself. He prays it, why? For the Lord's name's sake. God, for your glory, for your name, that you would be proven to be the rescuer and the protector and the strong tower that you claim to be. God, for your name's sake, deliver me. I've placed my trust in you. You've said you deliver those who place their trust in you. So do it, Lord, for your name's sake. 
David is living for the Lord. And the Lord is righteous. Do you see that in verse 3? The, the Lord is holy. He is perfect. He is pure. He does not like to be associated with around injustice. He is a righteous God. And he will not let injustice and unrighteousness stand, at least not forever. You say, in this world, in unrighteousness abound, injustice abounds, and it does. But a world is on the way that will be purged and purified of all of that stuff, and it will face its due judgment. You see, the battle that you're in is a battle that is about righteousness. The thing that's going on in your marriage is not ultimately about whether you're right or she's right, but about doing what is right by a holy God. What you're wrestling with in the workplace, feeling like you're disregarded and ignored and your boss just pays no attention to you and he's not treating you fairly, is not ultimately about you and your mean old boss. It's about what God says in his word about one who comes under authority and prays for authority and labors and works the best that they can as a witness to the power of God no matter what situation they're in. Now, it doesn't mean you don't also look for a new job. But while you're there, be a Christian. No matter how hard it is, you are not working for the man, you are working for the God-man. And you don't know what he might do through your faithfulness in that situation. The battle that you are in is about righteousness. It's not hokies versus whose. It's life and death. It's right and wrong. It's truth and lies. Justice and injustice. And David is under attack because of his work for a righteous God. And if you're under attack this morning, I want to urge you to let the reason be you're under attack is because you are standing with a righteous God. That's why David can say in verse 1, let me never be put to shame. When David asks that he never be put to shame, he's not saying that he'll never be put to shame in this lifetime. He's been put to shame many times. Jesus endures the shame of the cross. He despises it so that he can secure our victory in his resurrection. So what David is saying is on the other side. When you come and set everything right, I don't want to be on the side of those who have to be ashamed at your coming. I want to be on the side of those who can rejoice at your coming. Are y'all tracking? Is this making sense? So God, when you come in judgment and you sweep away every injustice and you judge everyone who stood against you, I want to be on your side. In your righteousness, deliver me, O oh God. And yet for the moment, David doesn't feel very victorious. It's hard. Anybody ever been in a season of hard? It's hard. In verse 5, David just says, God, I, I don't have any other recourse than to just give you all that I am in this moment. Not, not just my physical body, trusting that you'll deliver me physically one day, but God, I give you my spirit. There's a commentator named Wilson, who handles the Psalms incredibly well, and he highlights the importance of this word spirit in verse 5. He writes this, to commit your spirit to God is not simply to ask for physical deliverance. It is more than that. It is to ask him, excuse me, it is to make ultimate surrender of the very animating force of life into the care of God. 
The king's act of commitment reflects complete surrender of his self-determination and his submission to God's will. In other words, God, everything I have, all my hopes, all my dreams, all my aspirations, all my ambitions, even whether I live or die today, I give it to you. Let it be for your glory. And then in the last line of verse 5, we find a stunning statement of confidence. What does David say? You have redeemed me. That's past tense. You've already done it. I'm in the middle of a storm right now, God, but you've redeemed me. Because you have promised that those who entrust their lives to you, that you will rescue them. You will be my refuge and my fortress and my strength. Church, only when we give up on saving ourselves, being good enough to get to God, can we encounter the Lord and receive the rescue that he has for those who place their trust in him. If you don't know Christ today, let today be the day you just give him all that you are. You say, God, I take my whole life and help me live for you. When Jesus walked to Calvary, it seemed like his enemies had won. But Jesus kept going to Calvary in selfless submission to his Father. No one could take the life of Jesus without his permission, John 10, 18. He had to lay it down. He didn't insist. Get this, church. This is what God said to me this week in, in these first five verses. Jesus is God in the flesh. And he went to a cross for us. He's God. He could have said no way. But instead he said this is the way. He went to the cross. He did not insist on having victory without inconvenience or pain in the process. So that we could be victorious as well. Our sin paid by a crucified Savior so that when you walk through this world until He comes again, that you could have His power to walk in the way that He walked to Calvary. You say, man, this feels a lot like a cross. This feels like a lot like a burden. What did Jesus say? Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me, and follow me, and follow me. Constantly entrusting ourselves to the Lord. Let's, let's keep reading verses 6 through 8. David continues, I, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You've known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. The second point I want you to see this morning is that like, that like God's king, we must be all in. Not one foot in, not halfway. Some of y'all go to the pool and you like, you got to test the water a little bit, see if it's warm enough. I'm not, and then you sit on the side, right? You dangle your legs in there for a little while. That's, that's not what David's doing here. He's, he's just jumping in the deep end. He climbs the high dive and he just jumps off. We got to be all in for the Lord who sees, knows, and delivers us. In the first line of verse 6, we see that entrusting our lives to God means hating that which is opposed to God. We hate idolatry. We hate those enemies that want to rob us of intimacy with Jesus, our Savior. You say, well, am I supposed to hate people that don't belong to, to the Lord? And the answer is no, we don't hate them, but we want the enemy that they are serving to be conquered by the gospel. So we share the gospel hoping that our enemies will become friends. But ultimately, 
in, when Christ returns, that which is set against Christ will face judgment. And this impacts how we see the world. It impacts the glasses that we put on every morning as we navigate the world that we're in. Did you know that the commercials and entertainment and world system and philosophy professor that you're going to encounter in college or you did 20 years ago when you were in college or some of you 40 years ago when you were in college, however long it was ago, did you know they want you to put on a frame of glasses, a worldview that is inconsistent with God's word? They don't want you to see the world in the way that God made the world and designed it to be run. And they're attacking it in every sort of way right now. I mean, even biology is under attack. X's and Y's are under attack. I mean, it makes no sense. Why? Because once they dismantle God, they want to dismantle anything in His created order that points to the fact that there is a God. God made boys and girls. He made men and women. And even science demonstrates this truth. not anti-science, I'm pro-science. All accurate science will be consistent with Christ-like faith in the end. They don't disagree. Accurate science and genuine faith are not opposed to one another. Now, there's a lot of bad science that's opposed to genuine faith, and there's some crazy people out there who say this is a claim of faith that has nothing to do with faith, but Accurate science and accurate faith, in the end, will be proven to, to agree. That wasn't in the notes, but there's a lot of stuff today that's not in the notes. You'll have to forgive me. Verse 6, David, in trusting the God, gains some spiritual understanding and conviction. We get spiritual understanding and conviction when we surrender to the Lord. When we trust in God, we see as He sees. And we start to hate what he hates and to love what he loves and to desire what he desires and to not desire what he doesn't desire. When God changes us on the inside, our relationship with sin changes. We used to love sinning. We used to love going to the bar and getting sloshed and hanging out with the guys and then at the end of the day going, why in the world did I do that and have this massive headache? And then suddenly we don't like that anymore. But then we get tempted and we give into it and we're like, why am I doing this again? We stop loving sin and we start hating sin. The word hate is a word of separation. To trust the Lord is to refuse to compromise with idolaters. It is to hate gossip and backbiting and slander and insistence on our own way and rejection of biblical authority. And it's to hate our own selfishness. It's to hate greed and lust and pride and laziness and a host of every other things that Satan would use, our flesh would use to rob us of living out the victory that Christ has died and risen to secure for us. Verse 6 reminds us that we can't become like the world to reach the world. I, that needs to be said again. We can't become like the world as we try to reach the world. Ultimately, the world is captivated by the distinctive love and changed lives of God's people. We want to reach the world, we share the gospel, we live out holy lives in accountability to one another, and we love like crazy. That's how we reach the world. We don't reach the world by telling the world that their sin is okay. 
Now, it's certainly, if you're a sinner like everyone here, it's certainly okay to not be okay. But it's not okay to stay that way. Jesus died to change you. Yes, he will embrace you where you are, but if you've really been embraced by the love of a Savior who was perfect and died to take away your sin, the last thing you're going to want to do is keep on sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning and not care about it. So as we strive to engage others, we've got to remain morally separated from that which God opposes. As in everything, Jesus is our best example, is he not? What did Jesus do? He ate and drank with sinners, but he never sinned. And he never condoned their sinning. He upheld the holiness of God so that people might truly have an opportunity to know and encounter the grace of God. If you deny God's holiness or minimize God's holiness, you're not sharing the gospel. You're sharing a delusion that people will think they've gotten Jesus and then they'll continue to live unchanged lives. And when Christ returns, they're going to be really, really mistaken. And they'll spend eternity separated from the love of God. The reality of our present lives is that our society is increasingly begging us, asking us, insisting upon us that we endorse and celebrate and sanction things that we simply cannot do. And I've talked with several of you about the alienation that you feel settling into your soul as you make decisions to not be a part of causes and agendas and celebrations that end up costing you social capital at the workplace or in the neighborhood and possibly even friendships and relationships in your own family, but you're standing on the solid rock of Christ, refusing to compromise the holiness of Christ, because if you participated in those things, you would seem to be sanctioning something that is against God. In those moments, moments I've faced in my own life, Though it is difficult, we choose King Jesus over comfort and popularity. We choose King Jesus over being embraced by the world. And let's be honest this morning, it's not easy. For Jesus and for many who have followed him, it has meant not just to be disregarded, but to die. So what do we do? We look at verses 7 and 8. We rejoice in the Lord's steadfast love, His covenant faithfulness, that He keeps His promises. Though we used to be enemies of God, He made a way to rescue us by sending His Son to take our sin on the cross. We know that our Lord is not like the idols who threaten us and attack us. Why? Because idols are dead. They don't actually exist. They can't see us. But look at verse 7. God sees us. He sees us where we are. He knows what it is like to take on the enemy and win because he's already come down and done it in the flesh. We serve a Lord who doesn't just know about our pain intellectually. He knows about our pain experientially. He has known it. Do you see that in verse 7? He has known the distress of of our soul. The word distress means to be hemmed in, to feel like there's no way of escape, like everything is surrounding us and attacking us, and the world is urging us to give in to the idols rather than to go all in for Jesus. Jesus knows exactly what's that, what that is like because he endured it on the way to Calvary. He stared down death and trampled it by dying. And you think he didn't face temptation? 
being God. He could have called a legion of angels to take him off the cross. He could have healed his own wounds in a moment and never died. And yet, he surrendered his will to the will of the Father that our enemies might be conquered and have no hold on us. That we might have a Savior that we could look to and know that he sees what we see and he feels what we feel in the moment of attack. So what does David do? He entrusts his spirit to the Lord, to the Lord's hand, verse 5. And then in verse 8, we see that the Lord will make sure that the enemy's hands do not take hold of David. Those who die to themselves and entrust themselves to the Lord as their refuge, even if they die physically, they will never die. We face no enemy church that Jesus hasn't already faced and which Jesus will not conquer. In the end, when he returns, even death will be defeated. And we will say, oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? He is, Jesus is our broad place, verse 8. In him, we can maintain faithfulness to the Father even when faced with great enemies. You say, well, that's great. That's all I need is Jesus and I'm good to go. Well, in a sense, yes, but this is not some pie-in-the-sky prosperity gospel where I say it just makes all your problems disappear instantaneously. Look at verse 9. We'll continue through verse 13. David, David is facing some hard stuff. And I love that about the Scriptures. I love that in particular about David and the Psalms. He's very real and very honest about what he's facing. Look at verse 9. Be gracious to me, O Lord, why? For I am in distress. Well, what kind of distress, David? I mean, is it really that bad? My eye is wasted from grief. I, I can't stop crying. I've been crying so much. There's no tears left to cry. My soul and my body... Also, his whole being is under assault. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because all of my adversaries, because of all of my adversaries, I've become a reproach, especially to my neighbors. And an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. Can you hear the life of Jesus in these words? A body and a soul that are wasting away a life and years that are spent with grief. What we see in these verses is that like God's king, like David and like the greater David, King Jesus, we must ask the Lord to free us from the enemies that want to take out our lives. We must ask the Lord to deliver us from the enemies that want to take out our lives. Earlier I told you that this battle is about righteousness. And when God saves you, he saves you to live a godly life, to have true life, not dead spiritual life, but life in him. And for the rest of your life, once you trust Christ, guess what? That enemy wants to prove you wrong. 
That enemy wants to take you out. That enemy wants you to quit and to not endure. And in verse 9, David is hemmed in, restricted by his enemies, and the constant attack of his adversaries in verse 11. And it's impacted him in every possible way. The barrage of attack is wearing him down. His life and his years are spent with sorrow and sighing. And his neighbors and his friends flee from him. Verse 11. They forget him as though he's dead. Man, what is that guy doing? He's just battling enemies all the time. Why can't he just come hang out with the guys and do whatever? Give in to what the world says. So he's forgotten by his neighbors and his friends alike. He's treated in verse 12 as though he is already dead. Physically dead and dead to them. They're willing to cast him aside like a broken piece of pottery that is no longer useful. Verse 12. And then verse 13. There is terror on every side and the terror is a threat to his very life. Jeremiah used this phrase when he wrote the book of Jeremiah to the people of Judah. And he kept warning them of God's coming judgment. And they kept making fun of him and attacking him. They even put him down in a well, Jeremiah said, of his life and ministry. That there was terror on every side. The phrase terror on every side is a, is a picture of a multifaceted assault on the life and the character and the legal standing of the Lord's King. Any angle of attack that the enemy could find, whether it was based in partial truths or wholesale lies, the enemies don't care about truth. They will lie to you however much they need to to take you out. Satan's mission is your destruction, and our only hope is verse 9, that God would stoop down to us in kindness. That's the, the sense of the word, to be gracious to us. To be gracious, oh God. Come down to me in kindness. And did you know that God has stooped to you in kindness? Did you know that God has come down to you in grace? And he's done it in the person of Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. Psalm 31 is predicting the way in which God would give us grace. He has done it through the faithfulness of King Jesus, who was surrounded by enemies and abandoned by his friends as he went to the cross. Do you remember the enemies that Jesus faced? He, he faced the religious leaders. He faced down Satan himself. He faced Pilate who found no guilt in him, and yet handed him over to be crucified anyway. And all the way, people were whispering, didn't he say he was associated with God? Didn't he heal others? Didn't he do miracles? Wasn't this the man who supposedly walked on water? Didn't he raise Lazarus from the dead? Can he not save himself? He's the king of the Jews. Ha! This man thought he was the Messiah. This man, many hoped would be the Lord's long-awaited king, ends up dead and mangled beyond recognition on a Roman cross to conquer our enemies. And the result of him taking our shame upon that cross even his disciples abandon him. Even Peter, the ringleader, denies him. And let's face it, church, it's at this point, the point at which we feel very concretely that we're going to lose everything if we surrender to the Lord and His plan, that we are most tempted to just give in to our enemies 
It comes in in so many ways. Marriage, work, family, ministry. You're faced with an easy path. Just get off the cross and live for the world. Or you face the path of Christ. You're going to take up your cross, die daily, and entrust your whole life, your spirit, into the Lord's will for His glory and His name's sake. Jesus could have gotten off that cross. But He stayed. He stayed in obedience to His Father, in love for His Father. And so that there might be a way that you could walk in victory even in a wicked world. Him taking your place, dying for your sin, changing your life on the inside when you trust in Him, and giving you a whole new kind of power, divine power, to live for Him. This morning... There's some people in this room who don't have that power. There's some people in this room who've never found the broad place that is Jesus Christ. There's some people in this room who've been fighting the enemies in work, in home, in marriage, in your own power, in your own strength, and you've been listening to the whispering lies of the world, and all around you feels like terror. There is one broad, safe place, and His name is Jesus. And if you will trust Him today, go all in and say, God, I trust you. He will take your sin. He will give you His righteousness And He will give you a new power and a new perspective and a new family to help you walk with Him until the new heavens and the new earth come at the coming of our King. If you don't know this Savior, as we stand and sing in just a moment, I want to ask you to come and trust Christ today. Before we do that, let's pray together. God in heaven, we're lost without you. And God... I think I can speak on behalf of many in this room. It is so easy to take our eyes off of Jesus and to to put our eyes on ourselves. It is so easy to to try to navigate life in our own strength, and our own power. And Lord, we, we face enemies far stronger than we are. But they are not stronger than the resurrection power of Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who does not know you, does not know how to navigate life in the the victory of the King, God, that today would be the day. And if there are some, as I I trust there are, who know you, who've trusted you, who believe that you are their refuge and their fortress, but, God, they've not been taking refuge in you. They've been taking refuge in other things that today, God, they would renew their commitment to follow you all the days of their life, entrusting their very spirit into your hand, knowing that you will deliver them even from death. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.